This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. penultimate episode of season 16 has arrived as we really almost for the first time surprisingly in the devil made me do it the greatest satanic horror films of all time season this is the first film really that we deal with the faustian bargain which is of course a famous story trope when you tell tales about the devil. And that's exactly what we're doing tonight. And this time the devil is Robert De Niro in Angel Heart from 1987, also starring Mickey Rourke. Uh, This is a movie that I'd heard a lot about. I'd actually never seen this, shockingly. Um, But I just somehow never made its way into my purview so i never actually watched it it was all like a word of mouth movie for many years so yeah went in totally blind tonight other than just hearing some some of its reputation um and let me introduce our wonderful cast of course i'm getting a little ahead of myself there y'all sorry uh (laughs) how can we get their opinions if you don't know who they are first of all of course dream vote annie who is the boy? <laughs> that shit had me dying. <laughs> and returning to the show for the first time in a long time, the man behind Who's Comics, Todd Johnston. I remember Spidey. He used to play them drums like two Jeff Grabbits fucking. <laughs> and... Rounded out the cast tonight, the one and only Big Daddy Grizz, Jason Griswold. All I care about nowadays is two sisters cocktails. What? So, yeah, so I said, you know, I I went flying blind into this, pretty much only knowing of its reputation. What say you? Same here. I have, like, no memory of ever seeing this even, like, showing up on TV or cable or never heard about it talked in any friend circles. So, going in blind, going virgin. Well, the stars kind of perfectly aligned for me on this one because I was, as a listener of the podcast, I was listening this past week and heard that it was Angel Heart, then it had Robert De Niro in it, who's one of my all-time favorite actors. So, I was like, what the fuck is this movie? I've I've got to check it out. Never heard of it. Seen a lot of De Niro flicks in my time. It just never crossed my radar. But yeah, I I had to check it out. And luckily, you know, we recorded on the day that aligned with my schedule. So I was able to 
show up for it. So I'm very happy that it all worked out that way. And for you, never heard of it, never seen it. Yeah, we did get, uh, we, we got Mickey Rourke pre-looking like uh, the cat lady. So at least um, like Annie and I had a conversation about this where she was like, oh, I guess this is when people <laughs> thought of Mickey Rourke as like an it guy. Before, you know, he, he looked kind of like shoe leather and the, and the wrestler and became Randy the Ram and the dude in Iron Man and all of that shit. So, yeah, if you wondered why Mickey Rourke was who he was, this was it. Yeah, I yeah, I was like, oh, OK, now I understand why, like, women might have been attracted to him at some point, because I was not familiar with him for at least 10 more years uh, after this movie came out. And he looked that's not Mickey Rourke. Like, that didn't even look like the same person to me. Yeah, fair enough. All right, well, before we kick off the show and dig on into Angel Heart and this movie about a Faustian bargain, voodoo, jazz musicians, and good old-fashioned Southern racism and murder, we're going to kick it over to our musical guests, our wonderful pals over at Horror, Pain, Gore, Death Productions. That's HorrorPainGoreDeath.com have brought us yet another musical guest, and the ad read is going to be read by our own special guest returning to the show, Todd Johnston. Take it away. All right. Horror, pain, gore, death productions. Welcome Bread for Slaughter to the roster with the debut EP, Here You're Born, Here You Die. Hailing from the South Bay of California, Bread for Slaughter performs shredding blackened death metal grindcore that is vicious, intense, and extreme. Dedicated to the old school, Here You're Born, Here You Die, unleashes six tracks of pure headbanging madness that is the heaviest of the heavy, featuring scene veteran Mike Beams from Mortuous slash Exhumed on vocals, Bread for Slaughter spew forth a barrage of nonstop riffage from torrid old school grind to classic groovy mid-tempo death metal with tight chorus hooks that will keep the most discerning diehard listeners hooked. For fans of Carcass, Defleshed, Deicide, Entombed, Exhumed, Immolation, Marduk, Mayhem, Morbid Angel, Obituary, Sepultura, Slayer and Vader. There you go. Here, oh, here is bread for slaughter with splattered with toxic waste. I knew I'd fuck it up a little. Just you a got little. pretty good. And it's <laughs> kicking off this week's episode of Seeking Human Victims. <laughs>
The Coroner's Report. Okay, let's dig into the movie Angel Heart from 1987. Uh, general plot synopsis, at least the setup, is we have Harry Angel, what a name, played by Mickey Rourke, uh, who is a New York City private investigator, and he's hired to solve this disappearance case of a man named Johnny Favorite. And his investigation takes him to New Orleans, where he becomes embroiled in a series of brutal murders. So the P.I. becomes involved in this shit. And it's directed by uh, Alan Parker. Not going to go into any more of the plot. Hijinks ensue from there, of course. The, the satanic bend is that... There's a deal with the devil in play surrounding all of this. It was directed by Alan Parker, and Parker was well-known for using a wide range of filmmaking styles in his career. He directed musicals, including Bugsy Malone in 1976. He directed Fame from 1980, Pink Floyd, The Wall from 1982, uh, The Commitments in 1981, Evita from 1996, and then several true story dramas like Midnight Express from 1978, Mississippi Burning from 1988, Come See the Paradise from 1990, and Angela's Ashes from 1999. Uh, he's also known for family dramas, including Shoot the Moon in 1982, and other horror and thriller films like this film, as well as The Life of David Gale. So he is tasked to direct this film, which is an adaptation of a 1978 novel called Fallen Angel by William Hjortsberg. And he, so he releases this book. He starts working on a film adaptation. His friend is a guy named Richard Siebert, who's a production designer. And he takes the book to a guy named Robert Evans. And the film rights to the novel had been optioned by Paramount Pictures, with Evans slated to produce the films, John Hank Frankenheimer hired to direct, and Hjortsberg acting as a screenwriter. But Frankenheimer was later replaced by director Dick Richards, and Dustin Hoffman was being considered for the lead role. But Paramount's option on it expired, and Hjortsberg decided that uh, he would discuss the project with Robert Redford, and he wrote two drafts for this. And he also felt that no film studio was going to be willing to produce his script. He was quoted as saying, even with Robert Redford, they weren't interested. Why can't it have a happy ending? Every big shot demanded. And in 1985, producer Elliot Kastner met with Alan Parker at Pinewood Studios to discuss a film adaptation of the novel. Uh, Parker, who had read the book following its publication, agreed to write the screenplay. I got to jump in here. I, ho I was hoping we weren't done with the Alan Parker discussion because like when I first started the movie, I recognized the name because I'm a huge, huge Pink Floyd fan. Uh, the Wall is in that realm of my favorite movies. But uh, I think The Wall, I, if you've ever seen it, it's it always comes to mind thinking about uh, non-horror films that have horror scenes in them. There's a lot of horror imagery in The Wall probably the greatest uh, music video of all time feature length so huge huge fan of alan parker's work also i really enjoyed uh the road to wellville i don't know if a lot of people remember that movie but it was it was kind of like a dark comedy and it had anthony hopkins matthew broderick and like uh wayne's world guy the dana carvey was in dana it carvey and john cusack yes i love that movie so much 
yeah, huge Alan Parker fan. So excited to see him attached to this film. Just had to pipe in there with that. Oh, yeah, right on. And speaking of Parker, so now he's involved at this point. Uh, Elliot Kastner is meeting with him. Um, they end up getting financing. So after completing the first draft in September 1985, Parker travels to Rome and uh, he gets financing from two producers there. And it's an independent film studio is their moniker. And it's called Carol Co. Carol Co. Pictures. And Parker even got creative control. So they start pre-production work in January 1986 in New York, where Parker selects his creative team and reunites with several of his past collaborators, including producer Alan Marshall, director of photography Michael Saracen, camera operator Michael Roberts, production designer Brian Morris, and editor Jerry Hambling. Um, As far as the writing, there's a ton of changes from the book. Parker, once he got a hold of the script, really made it his own. Uh, he titled his script even different from the novel. It was Angel Heart. He wanted to distance himself from the source material. Uh, he, the Falling Angel book is set entirely in New York City, where, of course, we have this whole second half of this movie taking place in New Orleans. And it's, there's, it's based on the novel alluding to voodoo in the occult. Schwartzberg did approve of the decision of that change for the movie, so there wasn't any contention there. Also, the years are different. The book is set in 1959. They moved the movie to 1955. Other script changes involve, like, characterization and dialogue. Harry Angel was uh, not as sympathetic in the book, so Parker really sought to make him someone who did evoke sympathy. He said he was a Traditional down-at-the-heel gumshoe. Parker also was the one that established Angel being born on Valentine's Day, the same day as his own birthday. He He said that it was for no other reason than Valentine's Day might be easy to remember in a labyrinthine script, and the heart reference seemed to have some resonance. He also wanted a realistic depiction of Lou Cipher as opposed to the larger-than-life personality in the novel. Another script change involved the ending and the identity of the killer. So Angel is framed for the murders by Cypher himself, allegedly, in the novels. But in uh, this film, of course, it's revealed he is the killer at the end. It's all sort of like this psychological torture-type deal. So, so, So big departures from the book i did like the reveal of uh, louis cypher lucifer because they kind of played it for a joke it's such a silly you know name and there's a lot of i feel like there's a lot of movies that kind of do that with the goofy name that ends up being like oh it's this guy but you know it was played for kind of a joke even during a serious scene so i I appreciated how that was handled so i didn't see it coming but it was like oh yeah they did that. So, that was funny. The character's reaction was very similar to mine and Dan's when we first heard, when he was like, now listen here, Cypher. We both glanced at each other and were like, this motherfucker's name is Lou Cypher. <laughs> <laughs> and it's later yep. on when he says that, he's like, your fucking name is Lou Cypher. Yeah. It's a bit of an eye roll. And it's just like, oh, come on. There's a lot that's very on the nose here. A lot. I mean, Harry Angel is very on the nose. Johnny Favorite. I mean, like a reference to Johnny at the crossroads selling your soul to the devil. Like, I mean, fucking like, it's it's all the whole movie is very on the nose. 
It is. It, well, it has a lot of goofy sort of like noir elements to it, but it's like played pitch perfect. Like I, I don't know how to describe it, but like all the noir elements work, but at the same time, it's just kind of self-referential, I guess. Just really handled yeah. well. Be sure to save something for your final thoughts there, Todd. <laughs> oh, I've got a lot of final thoughts. It's fine. Oh, I, I had no no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the cast. We had, um, actually, before we talk about the cast, let's really quickly talk about the music. The score was produced and composed by Trevor Jones. Uh, there were some saxophone solos in there by British jazz musician Courtney Pine, but Parker had hired Jones based on his work on the 1986 film Runaway Train. And uh, the score definitely fits the vibe that they're going for with the noir and the New Orleans combo. And then now let's talk about the cast. Hey, uh, not a huge music guy. I do have something to say about the soundtrack. Not a huge music soundtrack movie sort of thing going on for me, but like it, this one stood out. So that I think that means something for me. It's it was the, like the sound, the score was kind of atmospheric but like it had a lot of incidental music, like the jazz and all the music of the era was really seamlessly incorporated into it. So I really appreciated it in this film. Usually I don't have anything to say about most soundtracks, unless it's like one of those huge over the top scores that it's undeniable, but this one was really subtle and I, I really liked it for that reason. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, this one stood out just a little bit more, you know, the film overall kind of, it's different than what we usually watch. So anything with saxophone instantly makes you feel like it is 1987 or, you know, earlier 88, if we're going to get nitpicky. But I thought, um, you know, the New York and the New Orleans elements were all blended together well, like Todd said. So I think the soundtrack was a cut above our usual fare. Hell yeah. Don't disagree. And then, uh, so now we'll talk about the cast. <laughs> Sorry there. Just cut, rusting right ahead of y'all. Uh, we had Mickey Rourke as Harry Angel. Of course, during the 80s, he played supporting roles in films like Body Heat in 1981 and Diner in 1982 before playing the lead role in films like Motorcycle Boy and Rumblefish, 1983, uh, Charlie Moran in The Pope of Greenwich Village from 1984, Captain Stanley uh, Captain Stanley White in The Year of the Dragon and John Gray in Nine and a Half Weeks in 1986. He also received critical praise for his work in the Charles Bukowski biopic Barfly and this film, Angel Heart. In 1991, following a string of critical and commercial failures, Rourke, who trained as a boxer in his early years, left acting and became a professional boxer. He retired from boxing in 1994 and returned to acting and had supporting roles in several films such as The Rainmaker from 1997, Buffalo from 19 uh, Buffalo 66 from 1988, Animal Factory, Get Carter both in the year 2000, The Pledge from 2001, Once Upon a Time in Mexico 2003, Man on Fire from 2004, and Domino from 2005 and in 2005 he made a comeback in mainstream Hollywood with the lead role in Sin City. And that culminated in him playing aging wrestler Randy the Ram Robinson in the sports drama The Wrestler from 2008, where he won a Golden Globe 
and BAFTA Award for Best Actor and got a nomination from the Academy for Best Actor. And after this, he was, you know, commercially successful again. He was in Iron Man 2, The Expendables, Immortals from 2011, and did a lot of independent and direct-to-video movies, just being able to cash a paycheck after that. So the often controversial Mickey Rourke, I thought uh, might be in the minority here. I didn't love his performance in this. I thought there were moments where he was pretty good. And I thought at the end when he's like losing his shit and kind of like, I don't guess it's, it's, it was not, but it was a bad performance. I just think it didn't work. Like it didn't work for me. I didn't, I feel like had they got one of those other actors they were talking about, this movie would have been, uh, a lot better, but uh, alas, I'm now stepping on my final thoughts, so I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah, I, I, as you listed a lot of his movies, I don't, I didn't, I haven't seen a lot of them, you know, a few of them, of course, I have, but do, was that accent a choice, or does he talk like that? That's a question. Yeah, I don't I'm know. That's pretty sure that's him. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Grizz. I think that's just the way he talks. Well, because that was the thing, because I was like, I hope that, like, because I don't know how he talks, you know, because it was maybe, like, even if that is the way he talks, I guess it was a choice for him to <laughs> to do that. But I don't know, like, the accent was just, it felt like it didn't fit. But, like, I don't know anything about Mickey Rourke or, like, where he's from. And I don't remember if that character was supposed to be from, like, a heavy accented city. He's from Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so it was just like i don't know the accent was even if that is how he talks it felt it felt like a like a strong choice well I'll, at least i'll be the one in the group that really enjoyed his performance like for me i was largely unaware of mickey rourke prior to sin city because that was such a like lockstep movie for me like it was is one of the best comic book movies in my eyes. And he had the best performance from the movie and like seeing him in this, I, it was just, he looks like a completely different person than I'm used to. And usually in a lot of his movies, he looks completely different. Of course he had a lot of, you know, work done at some point and he, he aged and he looks different, but seeing him here, I think he was a perfect choice Earlier on, I would have said he was playing like a Bruce Willis type. He sounds almost identical to 80s era Bruce Willis. And like, I would have thought like, this is a movie that should have been a Bruce Willis movie. But he does so much heavy lifting, like he carries the entire film, like as much as Robert De Niro is, you know, gets top billing. He's the most prominent on the movie poster. This is a this is Mickey Rourke's movie, and I gotta I really gotta hand it to him because he he has to do so much acting. He does kind of get over the top towards the end, but like leading up to that, he's just like the hard boiled detective, and he embodies it so well that I, it just completely worked for me. So I don't know, it might might, might be worth a rewatch for that reason. Uh, I I kind of agree with Todd. I think I was sitting here thinking, and it's like you know. A lot of it did seem a little over the top, but I think that's just him playing to the material because it's they're really going for that era of film. And I think, you know, a lot of the meat of the performance, like Dan said, 
it's towards the end when he's becoming unhinged. And I think, you know, you can see, you know, when his eyes are welling up with tears at the end, it's like, you don't, you don't see that kind of thing. I mean, you do see it, but it's like, it was, it seemed very, I don't know, naturalistic. Like I thought, you know, he just did a great performance. Um, I can see how the accent seems over the top. But like I said, I mean, if you watch any noir film from that era, they're all over the top. So yeah, you know, the Brooklyn accent gets annoying in pretty much any movie, but that's what it's there for. Right, but it didn't feel like it, like, it's not that it was like, I guess it's more that like he, he was acting different. Like he was on a different level. Like you're saying, like he was acting to the material and not necessarily everybody else was, I guess, might've been the problem. Could be, I mean, I guess... Like the De Niro performance, and you know, obviously we'll talk about that later, but I thought it was a great contrast how he's, you know, unlike a lot of De Niro performances, he's incredibly subdued. And the contrast is, you know, Mickey Rourke becoming more and more agitated and unhinged. So you see, you know, that's just a great contrast in the film for me. But yeah, I mean, to your point earlier, Annie, it's like I'd never heard of Mickey Rourke. There was like a time, you know, maybe Dan remembers it, but like, we were probably barely cognizant, but for a minute there in the 80s, Mickey Rourke was like the it boy. And, you know, even above Bruce Willis, probably, if anyone can imagine that. But well, especially after Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. <laughs> oh, two careers with one stone. Ouch. <laughs> Damn it, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. So he was like the it boy there. And like the first time I ever remember seeing him in a film was Wild Orchid. So I feel like that's almost a confession. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had showtime. <laughs> it was later than mine. Yeah, to wrap it all up. <laughs> For what to it's wrap worth. It all up. I thought it was at least a, a better than okay performance. Fine film, by all rights. <laughs> Uh, and then we had Robert De Niro as Louis Cipher, uh, the devil, of course, in this film. Um, no, like, they try to lead you on a journey. Right. He doesn't say he's the devil. He says he's Mephistopheles. Well, they lead you on this journey as if it's not obvious from the second he appears on screen with his pointy fingernails. And it's uh, definitely... <laughs> I, I got to think that Jimmy, uh, that Father James Mitchell, uh, uh, you know, all fucking satanic wrestling characters are friends. So we all have a secret coming. We, we meet twice a month. No, you can't come. But um, like, I think he I think he took a lot from De Niro in this in creating the Sinister Minister. Strong, strong Sinister Minister vibes. Uh, with the with the slicked back ponytail and the uh, the pointed fingernails, the, goatee, the pointed fingernails, like... fingernails. Uh, the, the his fingertip, he would do like the fingertip daily. The Mister Burns. Yeah. So yeah, I think there was uh, absolutely some influence there. But of course, I mean Robert De Niro. Like I have a giant career bio for him. Do I really need to fucking read it to you, motherfuckers? It's fucking De Niro. Goodfellas. Goddamn. Taxi Driver. The Deer Hunting. Deer Hunter. Cape Fear. Silver Lakes Playbook, Awakenings, King of Comedy, 1900, Once Upon a Time in America, Brazil, The Mission, Casino, Heat, Joker, The Irishman, Bronx Tale, Midnight Run, Wag the Dog, Analyze This, Meet the Fucking Parents. I was on some TV stuff. <laughs> he, he played Bernie Madoff in The Wizard of Lies in 2017. 
Um, like this shit just keeps going and going and going. He's also out besides acting and directing. He's also a producer. He and uh, Jane Rosenthal founded the Tribeca Productions Company in 1989, and he co-founded the Tribeca Film Festival in 2002. And six of his films have been inducted into the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Bobby De Niro, an all-timer, a fucking legend. And uh, yeah, I agree with Grizz's sentiments. I think I, I he's the best. He chose the fucking scenery, but in the most subtle way possible um, for De Niro. And uh, I, I think he's by far and above the best thing about the film. Yeah, I can't. No disagreement here. Like, De Niro, he just has such a massive screen presence. Like, he just has to be there for you to, like, completely buy whatever role he's playing. And is like, especially as demonstrated in this movie, his acting style is so effortless in a lot of his roles. And he, he may be my favorite actor of all time, but, like, in this movie, he just has such a quiet intensity to everything he says, like, I, as you have kind of said already. But, like, did he really have long hair in this movie? Because at some points it seemed like it was real, but, like, later on it seemed like it might have been, like, a weave or something. That's that's what I want to know. <laughs> but there's also, like, there's something so, like, uh, sinister about a really masculine guy having perfectly manicured really long fingernails that was a really good choice i think it's like from the very beginning you're like yeah that's the devil look look at those nails yeah i think this movie's worth the price of admission just for the scene with he and mickey rourke in the church when mickey rourke does his brooklyn potty mouth and he just suddenly is like this is a church it's like <laughs> that was just so awesome so yeah as we've said fantastic performance for what screen time he does have the only puzzler is you know, when Mickey Rook's returning to his room at the end, and it turns out, like, the little old lady in the morning clothes is actually a, a beardless Robert De Niro. So, still left puzzled over that one. Yeah, you and me both. I, I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> it's like, oh, I guess he's like, he's supposed to be embodying someone else. You know, there's a whole, like, kind of uh, possession angle in this film as well. Was left with a couple questions, yes. But yeah, fucking De Niro. Annie, did you, you gave some thoughts on De Niro, didn't you? I didn't, but I feel like you guys kind of went like we wall to wall it. there. Okay. Good deal. <laughs> so we make sure every voice is heard. You know what I'm saying, baby? All right. <laughs> We've covered it. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, probably the last actor that we'll have a lengthy talk about here, uh, Lisa Monet as Epiphany Proudfoot, uh, known, of course, as Denise Huxtable in The Cosby Show and A Different World. Uh, and actually, she got some love for this movie, got her a nomination for the Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress. And uh, she also did another thriller, action thriller, Enemy of the State in 1998. Uh, she was in High Fidelity in the year 2000, Biker Boys in 2003, and The Road to Paloma in 2013. And has sporadically worked on TV on shows like uh, Life on Mars and Ray Donovan. From 1987 to 93, she was married to Lenny Kravitz, where she had a child, Zoe Kravitz, who is also a well-known actress. Um, in 2017, she married Jason Momoa, 
and they had two kids and they announced their separation in January of 2022. So Lisa Bonet at her absolute peak of popularity here. She was like a super fucking over celebrity right here. So for her to do a role this racy and violent and sexual um, was a, a pretty big deal at the time. So it, uh, I, I can imagine it probably took some people by surprise. Yeah, man, it did get pretty damn racy too. But yeah, uh, to- High, High Fidelity was like a real formative movie for me in my youth. So like it was, it was really welcome to see her in this one too. It's always a really striking beauty. Always love to see her in anything I do see her in. So high yeah. honors for her. I, I bet it was she was a welcome sight in this movie, Todd. Well, I mean, what else can you say? All the liked, sights I saw of her were good. You liked all the sights. They were good sights. <laughs> what are you gonna do? I mean, I'm not. I'm not disputing <laughs> that. I think anybody <laughs> would like to see these sites. Anybody? I mean, 10 out of 10, for sure. It's a perfect 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to assume her bosses on the Cosby show were probably surprised as well, because you have to remember that was like one of the, if not the biggest show on TV at the time in 87. So I'm sure she and Bill may have had a word or two, but Ooh. other than that, yeah. Probably. <laughs> yeah, probably hurt their uh, little... Their family clean image there that the Cosby show had. Not not nearly as bad as the star of that show would hurt it later, but, yeah. <laughs> but we'll hey, see. that's what we're doing. We're exploring the past. Times were different. We didn't know. So, you know, he's a you with the Mickey Rourke and the filth and the foul and the <laughs> See, that's what I'm trying to get at. My ooh reaction was more like, yeah, they probably did talk. And I was hoping somebody would break out the Cosby impersonation, but I didn't want it to be me. So we, we all knew that was Grizz's spot. Come on. Yeah, but other than that, like, yeah, I mean, she's a good actress. Whatever you can say about how nutty she is off screen or, you know, whatever activity she's up to or changing her name to Lilacoy Moon, I, I think was that last check. But, yeah, I mean, she always puts in solid performances. Yeah, this one was particularly solid. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, rack salad. In the pants. <laughs> okay, oh, Todd. You, you had to take it one step too fucking far. God damn it. <laughs> it's called innuendo for a reason. Have some goddamn class. <laughs> I like to step a little bit over the line sometimes. My apologies. Uh, <laughs> then we had Charlotte Rampling as Margaret Cruzmark. Uh, she was known as Meredith in the film Georgie Girl from 1966. Uh, she began making French and Italian art house films with Lucio Visconti. She was in the movie The Damned in 1969 and The Night Porter in 1974. Starred in many European and English language films, including Stardust Memories, In the Verdict, Long Live Life, and The Wings of the Dove. And uh, in the 2000s, she became the muse of French director Francois Ozon appearing in several of his films, most notably Swimming Pool in 2003, to American audiences, at least of the recent era of premium television, she would be best known as Dr. Evelyn Vogel on Dexter. Yeah, not a whole lot of screen time for her, but, you know, you can see, obviously, she was a fairly solid actress. Lovely, too. Yeah. And we had uh, 
Stalker Fontaloo as Ethan Cruzmark appeared in several feature and TV films. This movie, Obsession, Live and Let Die, The Toy, and let's not forget Mandingo or Big Mama's House 2. Fontaloo sadly died in a nursing home from complications due to a fall in December of 2009. And then we had Brownie McGee as Toot Sweet. Too sweet. Um, actually, not an actor at all. A real-life American folk musician and a Piedmont blues singer and guitarist best known for his collaborations with harmonica ter- player Sonny Terry. Incorporating some real blues. Yeah, when you see it on screen, you think Toots Sweet, but everybody in the movie called him Toots, so that adds nothing to the conversation, but that was just a funny observation. Yeah, that's right, it was Toots. I mean, that's No, funny. but when they the, when they talked to him, they called him Toots, but when they talked about him, they absolutely said Toots. Like, he had farts that smelled like candy. <laughs> <laughs> Always tooting, that guy. That's what he's known for. He Toots Sweet, though. <laughs> God damn it. And then we had Michael Higgins as Dr. Albert Fowler, American actor best known for being in the original Broadway production of Equus. Was he? I'll have to. I wonder if he was the lead actor in Equus. So lots of people saw his penis. So then he was the lead. He was the lead actor then. Yeah, if everybody (laughs) saw his his peen. Yep. And then we had Elizabeth Whitecraft as Connie. Her break came originally in 1984, where she was in the film Birdie. And then she worked in several De Niro films. She was in this film. She was in Goodfellas as Joe Pesci's girlfriend. Um, In 1988, she played a slightly more notable role as the naked woman caught with Alec Baldwin's character in Working Girl. How is that slightly more notable than being the girlfriend of Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas? I don't know, maybe she had more screen time. I was wondering the same thing. Uh, She was also on a few TV shows, uh, a couple of 80s favorites, Spencer for Hire from 1985, and Quantum Leap, one of the GOAT 80s TV shows. And then after co-starring in Object of Obsession in 1995, she left acting but did make a brief appearance in 2005 on George Clooney's HBO show Unscripted. And as of 2006, she was working as a fashion stylist in L.A. Still out there in the business somewhere. And then we had Charles Gordon as Spider Simpson. That was the first African-American to win the Pulitzer Prize for drama. And he devoted much of his life to theater and the pursuit of multiracial American theater and racial unity. Spider Simpson, that's a cool name. And then we had Dan Florick as Herman Winesap. Was a fucking wine sap. Best known for his role as New York City Police to Captain Donald Craigan on uh, NBC's Law and Order and its spinoff Law and Order SVU, as well as playing Dave Meyer on LA Law. It's like the greatest sad sack name for a character ever. Yeah, he was definitely an 80s uh, cop show guy with a sad sack character name. The, that was the, it's, I'm thinking of the right guy, am I? That That's basically like Satan's Renfield in this. Yeah, he was the lawyer. Okay, that's what I thought. But it's a great line, you know, when he's like, well, what about wine? So I was like, oh, what's one less lawyer in the world? <laughs> uh, we had Kathleen Wilhoyt as the nurse. She made her debut in the film Private School in 1983 before having lead role in Murphy's Law in 1986. She was also in Witchboard in 1986. I love this shitty movie. 
Crossing Delancey in 1988, Roadhouse in 1989, and Lorenzo's Oil in 1992, as well as several guest starring roles on Twin Peaks. And then finally, rounding out the cast, we had Pruitt Taylor Vince as Detective Deimos, who is best known for his roles in films like Shy People in 1987, Mississippi Burning in 1988, Jacob's Ladder in 1990 with Tim... Co- oh, that's a fucking... Whew, that movie rules. Um, Nobody's Fool from 1994. Heavy from 1995. Beautiful Girls from 1996. Nurse Betty from uh, 2000. Identity from 2003. Constantine from 05. Gotti from 2018. And Bird Box in 2018. Uh, he's also known for his role as J.J. LaRoche in The Mentalist. And that will do it. For our cast, principal photography for Angel Heart began on March 31st, 1986 and concluded on June 2nd of 1986. The filming began in Manhattan, New York City, which acted as Harry Angel's neighborhood. Uh, Filming then moved to Alphabet City in Manhattan, where several bar scenes and the intimate bedroom scene was crafted. It then moved to Harlem to film a chase scene set during a procession before moving to Coney Island, where the cast and crew underwent severely cold weather conditions. And that was used to film a scene where Angel questions a man about the whereabouts of Johnny Favorite, while Izzy's wife, the guy he's questioning, stands waist deep in the ocean. The original actress who was cast was injured when she was knocked off her feet by a wave while delivering her lines. She refused to reshoot the scene. And that led to her being replaced by a stand-in whom Parker found to be a better actress. (laughs) Well, that's one way to lose a gig. And then production returned to Manhattan to film the opening credits. Then moved back to Harlem where a hospice scene was used to film or was was used to uh, film a scene involving Spider Simpson. And many of the hospice's elderly residents were extras. So they didn't even move the, the guests staying at the hospice out. They just brought one in, one ringer in and filmed him. And then they moved to Stanton Island to film exterior and interior scenes involving Dr. Fowler. And then to Hoboken, New Jersey, which was a double set for a scene at New Orleans train station. And then in May of 86, they moved production to New Orleans in the town of Thibodeau, Louisiana. And uh, they discovered that an entire plantation workers village That would serve as a graveyard. They said it was a dress set, but much of what was filmed was already there. There was an unused Louisiana field that was used to create a racetrack. And then on May 13th, they encountered some difficulty filming a chase scene with Angel as they had to deal with shying horses, trained dogs, gunshots, 200 chickens, and a horse specially trained to fall on top of Mickey Rourke's stuntman. Production then moved to Magazine Street, where production designer Brian Morris and the art department attempt to recreate 1950s New Orleans. That's where they also filmed a voodoo ceremony. And more and more. Like, they they filmed all over, but ultimately, I think it mostly ended in New Orleans. They did, I think, go back to New York to do some touch-ups. But, yeah, that's there's our shooting dates and locations. A lot of... Uh, antidotes there for example um there was an uh so here's something funny like they fucking 
they had to film scenes in New York and make it look like New Orleans before they just moved production down there. So they filmed, they said they filmed a train station in New York that was actually supposed to be New Orleans. And then also they had to shoot a corner in New Orleans and recreate it as 1943 Times Square. So they used New York to make New Orleans and then New Orleans to make New York. That's very odd and interesting. And with that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. Let's talk and open the door to the auditorium and find out all about the odd and interesting facts of Angel Heart. One is uh, there was another version of the film released. It was an edited TV version. So it was produced to remove the more graphic sex scenes. In particular, you know which one. (laughs) The one between Mickey Rourke and Lisa Bonet. It was actually completely recut. And it featured additional footage that was not included in either the R-rated or unrated versions of the film. The additional footage features flashbacks of a drunken party with scantily clad women where Johnny Favorite was stationed uh, at the barracks just prior to being hit with a series of explosions. And it ends with a brief shot of Epiphany's presumably dead body burning amongst a pile of charred rubble. All exclusive to the TV version. You gotta love those TV edits. Like, I I know Scream Factory is really well known for including those on their, like, collector's edition releases. But I think more people should do that because it's always it's always cool, especially if you have young kids like uh, like the Halloween Halloween Two both had those, I believe, in their Screen Factory releases. You can always put those on for for the youngins if they want to get a little taste of the scary. So I think more studios should release those because they're so there's there's just so much gold there, and like a lot of the the dubbed dialogue, like replacing cuss words with other things that are just ridiculous. I just, I have a huge affinity for that. Whenever a studio releases that on their disc, I just, I wish every movie had that. At least every movie above PG-13 level should have it. Yeah, I think like the most famous example, that'd be the original Halloween TV version, which has like a whole added fucking backstory that's not in the movie. Oh, dude, the Mall Rats. The best one I can think of is Mall Rats because I got the collector's Mall Rats edition, and it's one of the worst ver- TV versions of anything because, like, you have to change probably eighty percent of the dialogue. I think Jason Mewes, all of his dialogue is replaced by a different actor because everything he says is just horrible. So it's got to recommend that one. Find that Mallrats TV version. It's a hoot and holler, as we say down here in the South. <laughs> yeah, I doesn't, bet. doesn't that additional footage kind of uh, give away a bit of the ending, though? Yeah, man, it kind of does. Well, I guess it's like foreshadowing. You're not supposed to know that it's her. If she's burning, probably unrecognizable, maybe. I don't know. Well, no, it, no, it gives away the ending that... Uh, Johnny Favorite is fucking dead and possessed by the fucking devil, and that 
the man that he's looking for that Epiphany's mom, Evangeline, was waiting for, who never came back from the war, that was Epiphany's dad, is him. You don't get that till the end of the movie, but that's what that's showing, is that he was at, at the war and that he died in an explosion. Yeah. That gives away the ending. <laughs> Did they actually show the face in the scene, though? Because usually when he's having flashbacks, you don't see necessarily a lot of faces. It, it says that it's the barracks where Johnny Favorite was stationed, so I assume that it's presented as if it's his own flashback. Okay, well, I guess we'll just have to get that version in. I know. I too. We're going to have to get our hands on it. Apparently, when Alan Marshall first approached Robert De Niro by phone to ask him about taking a part in the film, he asked him, are you the guy who produced Birdie? And when Marshall replied that he was, De Niro, De Niro promptly hung up on him. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> That's great. And you got to think, like, all of Robert De Niro's scenes probably could have been done in a day. So they, it feels like this was approaching peak De Niro. So they had him, they had to have him for one or two days at the most. And he just knocked it out of the park. So... <laughs> <laughs> so we mentioned Robert De Niro basically inspiring uh, like Sinister Minister and some other things hilariously. The performance of Lou Cipher here is a rib from De Niro on his dear friend and collaborator Martin Scorsese. So he's he's actually basing his performance on Scorsese. So it's kind of like um, in uh, what is it? American Psycho. Who was that? Christian Bale. And they're like, what was your inspiration? He's like, Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much. This film actually ended up be uh, being the impetus for a feud between De Niro and Mickey Rourke. It was the first and last time they worked together. Neither has had kind words for the other since. It apparently stems from De Niro refusing to talk to Rourke off camera, feeling this would be detrimental to their chemistry. Rourke apparently took this personally and has talked shit about De Niro ever since. The bad blood has endured for decades. And in 2019, 32 years after the film's release, Rourke accused De Niro of blocking him from taking a role in The Irishman. Rourke once said about De Niro, I don't look up to him no more. I look through him. What, <laughs> what does that mean? Man, I was, brother. I couldn't help but think of uh, The Devil's Advocate this whole movie because it was like because i that's a more well-known film for me with pacino as the devil it seems more and more like that whole movie was made in response to this one it was like well uh, we're gonna get pacino and now he's the devil so yeah <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of similarities too i don't think you're wrong <laughs> <laughs> great movie that, that was when movie. pacino just had to show up and yell though you know yeah, it was a definitely more yelly role overall. He's a more loud devil. <laughs> hoo -ah. hoo -ah, I'm the devil over here. Uh, near the beginning of the movie, Harry Angel opens his bag. You see a set of skeleton keys. Um, in the novel, he uses a set of skeleton keys to open locked doors. They're a vague reference to the Hand of Glory, which Margaret Crusamark mentions which is said to be used to magically open all locks doors. 
Alan Parker said that pitting De Niro and Rourke against one another was not about acting. He likened it to a couple of prize fighters testing one another as they slowly encircled each other. So, it seems like Alan Parker might have stirred that pot a little bit. This was Lisa Bonet's very first film role. At the time, of course, you know, we talked about her being Denise Huxtable. Um, before accept, okay, so we talked about this. We talked about this. You're probably going to have to have a talk. Here we go. Before accepting the role, she had to, 18 years old at the time, approach Bill Cosby to get his approval. According to Bonet, he encouraged her to take the role. But other sources reported he was outraged because it clashed with the wholesome image of the show. His friend, comedian and actor Sinbad, said years later that this was exaggerated by the media. Cosby wasn't happy about it, but understood why she felt it was right for her career at that point and didn't stand in her way. He admits he never saw the film, but he did criticize it harshly after it was released, saying it was a movie made by white America that cast a black girl, gave her voodoo things to do and have sex. And he's not wrong. And I was about to say... Man, that's a pretty fucking accurate indictment, unfortunately. <laughs> like, yeah, like think about holy it. shit. Like, I was about to talk shit on Bill Cosby, but, like, he's not completely wrong, at least in this one very specific instance. No, that specific quote, he's not wrong at all. But also he is wrong for, like, thinking he can exhibit any kind of control over anyone else's career. Like, this is her own choice. She's a woman. Like, fuck him. Uh, at the same, in the same breath. Also, fuck him. She can do whatever she wants. Yeah, she but, but it sounds like he didn't, he, he didn't, though. Is it like, and he can be not happy about it because, like he said, it's going to hurt his brand. It sounds like that's what he wasn't happy about. I which... can't disagree. <laughs> but also, like, Still fuck him. No, like, no, <laughs> like, fuck Bill Cosby. Absolutely, it's, for it's sure. Hard to, it's hard to, like, you know, it's a hard situation all around. Yeah, I feel like he shouldn't have any say. And maybe he didn't, no. but it feels no, like he had I, a little bit, like, he was like, ooh, I don't know about this. No, I, I would imagine that she felt like she needed to ask him his opinion um, and get his approval first. Because she had been on his show for so long as his daughter that she probably did view him like a father. And also, yeah. it was also her brand. And, you know, growing up in Hollywood, she recognizes that it's also his brand and everybody else on the show. And it's like, am I going to get fucking fired for this? And once they were like, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And she was like, all right, dope, I'm going to do that. And she didn't get fired or anything. So, yeah. I'm going to have to say, I'm not going to say fuck Bill Cosby about this specific situation. But <laughs> overall. I'm going to blanket say fuck Bill Cosby. But overall, yes. <laughs> fuck Bill Cosby, yeah. Well, I'll say. Just want to get that out there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> nobody accused Bill Cosby of being dumb. It, I think it probably was a branding issue. Like we said, that was like the biggest show in America. And he was one of the biggest stars. So, you know, you still get this kind of thing when people go and do other shows or go and do other movies where, you know, you're affecting like everybody on that show. So, and two, I'm going to be the only guy in America who says Sinbad was probably right. But you does know, it probably, really like this has a completely different audience than like the Bill Cosby show? It's just a, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit. I, I just need you to acknowledge my Sinbad joke, Todd. No. <laughs> I, 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 will, oh, I will acknowledge that. Then bad was right. It was probably the media. 
Okay. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah, I'm sure the other sources that were reported that he was outraged was probably like The Enquirer, People Magazine. You know, we've told a lot of stories on here about how actresses that did these racy scenes in some of these movies were kind of made to feel shitty and uncomfortable and put in kind of manipulative positions or coerced into it. Um, happy to report here, Lisa Bonet has been quoted many times saying this was a great experience, very fun to do, uh, to explore these elements inside of yourself and getting to do it in front of everyone was like getting your getting caught with your hand in the cookie jar. She said it was totally unchoreographed. Her and Mickey had lots of freedom. Three hours of sex and blood with uh, the director just screaming more blood. Uh, Mickey was nervous, as was she. They said she'd never done a nude scene before, and he hadn't either. By the time they shot the scene, which was the last major thing they had to do in the shoot, she began to feel a lot more comfortable. So, and for that, thing. we should, we should, as a group, applaud it because hundred percent consensual. She was down. The audience was down. Thumbs up all around for that shit. Well, now hang on. My only question is, what did Lenny Kravitz think? <laughs> he was just wondering if we were going to go his way I believe at that point if not too far after that well Mickey Rourke found at least one way we know that <laughs> so one thing with the the as a period piece I was kind of back and forth on what I thought about it but I appreciate this detail um, they actually took time though even though it's set in the cities then sorry even though it's set in the 1950s to uh, make most of the props and set dressing from the 40s and the 30s. Why is that? Well, of course, the reality is you don't, most people don't buy new clothes or new homes or new furnishings every year. So, like, the shit that most people have are 5, 10, 20 years old, especially in poorer areas. So this also explains why so much of the set looks old. Those antiques would have looked old even in the 50s. So... Interesting and cool attention to detail, I thought. Yeah, I got a comment on that. Like, a lot of the set dressing was really nice and appreciated. Like, you see a lot of movies that are set in a certain time, and it's just everything seems so clean and neat. But this, like, the overall aesthetic of the movie was real gritty and dirty and, like, cluttered. And it was like every every close-up shot seemed really realistic and of the time. And a lot of that I got to give to Alan Parker because he, he just, that's his deal because he has so many period films and they all ring true, at least for me. And this one is no slouch there. He's, he's given it all, his all and the set set designer set dressing was on point. It was, it was really good. Of course, we talked about the on the fucking nose shit. Um, there's more of that in the naming of the characters. Detective Deimos, of course, uh, Greek mythology, the son of Ares and Aphrodite, the personification of terror. Epiphany, also a Greek word meaning su sudden discovery. Um, the framed photograph over the desk in Margaret Krusemark's apartment is French author Guy de Maupassant. Some of his stories deal with the evil and supernatural. The slate number on the clapperboard when they shoot the Lisa Bonet voodoo dance scene. Behind the scenes, by total coincidence, 666. And there's some references to uh, other hard-boiled stories. We have 
Angel referring to the Louisiana cop as Tess Trueheart and Effie Clinker. Both are pop culture references. Of course, Tess Trueheart was Dick Tracy's girlfriend. And then Effie Clinker was one of Edgar Bergen's ventriloquist dummies. Specifically, her character was a man-crazy spinster, always trying to catch her a lover. And then Harold Angel calls Johnny favorite Johnny Golden Tonsils. And Izzy's wife says that he was known as the man with golden tonsils. And then finally, while in Louisiana, Angel goes past a theater advertising international counterfeiters. That was the one of the names of Adventures in Berlin, a movie from 1952. Of note are the parallels to this story, as it is about a lawyer hired to find a missing person who ends up in danger. So a lot of subtlety, a lot of uh, wordplay, a lot of hidden stuff and messages. Um, all kind of intentional there. So we've talked about the artistic uh, integrity of the film. We've talked about the casts and our opinions and detail on them and a lot of things. But how did this fucking thing do? Let's look. Let's look at the numbers. Numbers of the All right, Numbers of the Beast. Angel Heart was released on March 6th, 1987, with a budget of $18 million, but a box office return of 17.2 domestically. So, not what you'd call a resounding success. Ouch. I mean, not a bomb. Like, it didn't shit the bed, but it didn't set the world on fire either. It just kind of, you know, you look. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's all I was going to say. It wasn't a bomb, but didn't really set the world on fire. You have to assume at this time, you know, with uh, with TV rides and and you know, this is you're getting into the the heart of the video era, rental era. You know, it's going to make its money back eventually, but not exactly a scorcher. Yeah, seems to be a movie that kind of found an audience with you know the fandom of horror kind of building up over time as well, because it is this kind of weird thing that floats between horror and detective noir and true crime and other shit. Um, Talk about the reception. So currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got an 82%, so it's pretty well liked there. It uh, says a consensus is that it lures viewers into disturbing, brutal, mysterious, uh, with authentic noir flair, uh, brutal mystery with authentic noir flair and a palpably hypnotic mood. Uh, The author of the novel himself supported the film, stating that Alan Parker wrote an excellent script and made a memorable film. Casting Robert De Niro was a brilliant touch. Uh, Initial film critic reactions were quite mixed. Hollywood Reporter uh, indicated that the reviewers generally praised Rourke's performance in the score, cinematography, and production design. Criticism was aimed at Parker's screenwriting for being heavily convoluted and exposition heavy. New York Times praised the cinematography and production design, but criticized the uh, performance by Mickey Rourke. It was suitably intense, but to little effect. Washington Post said it was over-stylized and we're overstimulated when the soundtrack goes berserk from a few thumpity thumps to a visceral ventricles of pump and score. Uh, the New Yorker says there's no way to separate the occult from the incomprehensible. Parker doesn't have the gift of making evil seductive and he edits like a flasher. <laughs> He also criticized De Niro's appearance, stating it's the sort of guest appearance that lazy big actors delight in. 
where they can show up the local talent. That should be our new tagline from the occult to the incomprehensible. That's pretty good. <laughs> Jot that down. On the syndicated television program, Siskel and Ebert at the movies, Gene Siskel said that uh, he gave it a thumbs down, but Roger Ebert gave it a thumbs up. And in the Chicago Tribune, Siskel said that Parker seems more concerned with style and hiding the film's mystery than with pacing. Siskel criticized the sex scene for being not as shocking as the ratings board would have you believe. So, did not give give Gene Siskel a chub. How how is he going to criticize the movie for that? Like, the movie, they just made the scene. They're not the ones that were, like, hyping it up, being like, this shit is crazy. We had to cut out 10 seconds of this scene. Like, he needs to be, like, criticizing the MPAA for that shit. Yeah, interesting that, that Ebert liked it. Is Siskel trying to have, like, some big D energy? It's like, man, me and my wife on Saturday night, way more intense. It's like, yeah, right. It's like, okay, Gene. Uh We'll never forget one time we were at band practice and I had said someone was dead. And Todd's only response was, just like Gene Siskel. Oh, shit. <laughs> Random <laughs> memories from 20 plus years ago that pop in your head. Man, I, I, I don't remember lot. that, so I'll assume I was six schlitzes in at that point. Piping <laughs> I mean, hot schlitzes. <laughs> huge fan of the at the movies i definitely sided with roger ebert more times than gene siskel roger ebert's not perfect he has a lot of criticisms of horror that i don't agree with but i'm a a huge fan of their show at the movies and i always will be it's a huge point of reference for me as far as films go but yeah fuck gene siskel (laughs) and he was dead when i did say that so no, he had recently died. He died like the week before. It was in the news. <laughs> it was a little, maybe a little too soon, but man, what are you going to do? Uh, so the, the film had some influence on pop culture a little bit. Christopher Nolan said it was a major influence on his film Memento. And uh, Wired Magazine ranked it one of the 25 best horror films of all time. Bad, not bad. Um, it's been... Added to a lot of lists as far as great underappreciated films of that era, etc. One of the best, top ten best depictions of the devil in cinema also was another list it was added to. Also won a ton of awards. Uh, Mickey Rourke won the Jupiter Award for Best International Actor here. Um, Lisa Bonet won the Young Artist Award for Best Female Superstar. And uh, won three Saturn or received three Saturn Award nominations, but did not win. So a big, uh, lots of lots of critical acclaim and awards. If you want to own this piece of cinema on your own, then Annie can tell you how to do it. So Angel Heart was first released on VHS. On September 24th of 1987, so just like six months later, um, and that was put out by International Video Entertainment, IVE. That release included both the R-rated theatrical cut and the uncut version, which restored those 10 seconds of sexual content that they removed to satisfy the MPAA. Uh, In fact, the senior vice president of IVE said at 
the time. The scene that was cut from Angel Heart is both provocative and shocking, but it is by no means pornographic. And we are pleased to give the public the opportunity to see the film as Alan Parker originally meant the film to be viewed. So, like, everybody thought it was bullshit. Um, and then it was first released on DVD in June of 1998 by Artesian, or Artis, Artis, Artisan Entertainment, your pick. Um, the special features on the DVD included a theatrical trailer, production notes, a making of featurette, and information on the cast and crew. Um, the DVD received criticism for its poor video transfer and shortage of special features, even though I just, you know, gave you some. Um, Artisan re later re released the film on Laserdisc, in August of 1998, so that's another little odd and interesting fact. DVD came out before the Laserdisc. Um, and then Lionsgate ended up re-releasing it as a special edition DVD in May of 2004. And the special edition features additional material, including an introduction and audio commentary by Parker, scene-specific commentary by Mickey Rourke, a video interview with Mickey Rourke, and the theatrical trailer and then Lionsgate also released the film on blu-ray in november of 2009 and upgraded it to high definition and also includes all of the additional materials and then in july of last year 2022 Lionsgate released the film on 4k ultra hd for the first time in the united states so Literally, whatever version of this movie you want, you can purchase. And then it is also available for rent right now. Um, not streaming anywhere that we could find as of today. All right. Well, one thing left to do for the story of Angel Heart. And that is give you our final motherfucking thought. And my final thoughts on Angel Heart are this. Um, I liked the film. I, I think there is a, a cool vibe in these like late 80s, early 90s horror movies that tackle some social issues a little bit without getting too on the nose about it. Um, but like they're, you know, relevant issues of the time, maybe through a lens of a different time. Like um, you kind of reminded me of Candyman in some ways with the way they tackle some of that kind of reminded me of Serpent in the Rainbow in some ways. And like oh, there's an atmosphere that all of those movies had that is really cool. I think that is the the atmosphere, the set design. Uh, Robert De Niro all works for me a ton. Mickey Rourke doesn't work for me as great as a leading man, as I'd mentioned. I just, something about his performance, I just couldn't quite attach. It was raw. I mean, I appreciated that, but but I just, I don't know. It just didn't hook me. Um, but uh, a fun movie, I it was a little too long, was my my biggest gripe about it, I thought, as well. Like, it, it had me, but I think, you know, maybe 20 minutes less, a little less exposition, a little more show, a little less tale would have... Uh, maybe tighten it up a bit and made it a, a more enjoyable watch. But I, I won't say I disliked it because I absolutely didn't. Um, it was it was pretty okay. I would say above average. I, I enjoyed it better than average, but I was not, like, in love with it. Very okay was my immediate response after the movie was over. Um, there's a lot in this movie, 
a lot of concepts, a lot of ideas, a lot of storyline threads that I like. There's a lot about this movie that on the surface, on paper, I should love this movie. And I want this. I, I feel like the potential is there. And I, 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 I don't know what could have changed about it that would have made it better. Um, but I, I, I wanted to be here for it. But it just didn't land for me. Um, it being set in the 50s, um, it didn't, it did, but it didn't feel like that. Like, it still felt like an 80s movie. Um, it, in the way that it, it like, uh, I guess that touches more on, like, what Dan was saying and stuff uh, about it. Like, feeling like this or, like, the vibes and stuff. And, like, I don't know. It was just weird how it felt so it still felt like it was the 80s but everything was dressed in 50s and it was it was it was strange um and it just i i wanted i feel like this movie could have been so much better and i wanted it to be so much better and i wanted to like it a lot more but i also don't i can't like tell you that it was bad because it wasn't um and i didn't dislike it it was just okay um it was it was fine um, everybody did a good job, and it was well done. But yeah, it was just okay. Well, um, I agree with a lot of y'all's sentiments. I think I would describe this as, especially in contrast to the other things we've done this season, as unique. Um, just first time watching it, you know, very much you can recognize. I mean, you heard the list of all the films Alan Parker's done. It sounds like he owned the '80s, but yeah, it does have '80s vibes. You know, I did find it ironic here. They were trying to copy the 40s and 50s style, and here we are. It's been that many years since then. We're trying to copy the 80s style and everything we do. But I think it was probably unique for its time. I think it's still kind of unique as far as is it a detective story? Is it a horror movie? You know, and it's not as if that was never done, but it's not done a lot. You know, and like Wilson said, I was getting strong Serpent in the Rainbow vibes. You only get occasional voodoo movies. As much source material as there, you only get those occasionally in mainstream circles. But overall, I thought, you know, solid, more than solid performances. You know, um, whatever you may think of Mickey Rourke, fairly solid performance. Great De Niro performance for as little screen time as he actually has. Um, everyone there, you know, you get like the blues band and things like that. It just, it gets kind of a natural vibe going, which was cool. So I don't really have anything critical to say. I mean, maybe if you feel like it was too long, which I can understand where you're coming from, but I felt like it was more of a slow burn. Like, you know, that was intentional, which, you know, that's a nice change of pace sometimes is to just let things unfold. And of course, you know, maybe a third, two thirds, three quarters of the way in, you've already figured it out. But it's still nice to watch it unfold and like watch the character kind of descend into that madness of figuring it out himself. So I thought overall, really good, really cool, unique film. So I think it's definitely worth a watch. All right. I'm going to try to, I did say earlier that I had a lot of final thoughts. I'm going to try my best not to make this too overlong and rambling, but it's probably going to turn into that anyway. So here we go. Uh, I really was kind of blindsided by this movie. I really like Alan Parker. I I was caught unaware that this is one of his movies. 
Robert De Niro was involved. It's just kind of knocked it out of the park for me personally. I like Alan Parker's style of filmmaking, and he has a lot to bring to the table. Um, his cinematography was beautiful. Every scene in this movie is beautiful to look at. And he just, he, he, it's a classic noir. If you like film noir at all, this, I recommend this movie. Uh, he does a lot of uh, what I call aspect to aspect transitions in his scenes where you see, like he'll set up a scene. It has a lot of, like the establishing shots are kind of spread out throughout the scene. Like you'll see a character fiddling with the, like a pack of cigarettes or something like that. And it just, it all adds to it. It has a high level of detail. If you're into that sort of thing, this is a really great movie to watch. Um, the best example of the aspect to aspect scene transition I can think of is the, the really graphic sex scene like during it you see um you see the water dripping into every single thing in the room it cuts here and there and it's just it, it's a technique that's used a lot in um manga and anime and it's surprising to see it in a movie like this where it's just like to establish scene you see everything in the room like it's it, it it's kind of you see everything that's going on, and it just it builds like this uh, element of realism that you don't find in other movies, and that really stood out for me. There's a lot of minor details, a lot of nuance going on here. Every scene feels real and lived in. Like it, a lot of the scene dressing. Is it just? I don't. I don't know. It like, it feels like reality in a heightened sense. And this this movie, like uh, the '80s, were a big time for like a noir revival. If you think back to other movies in the genre, like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Blade Runner, even Batman, like the '80s were a like a hotbed of film noir resurgence from the 50s so this i think this stands shoulder to shoulder with those kind of movies and it, it i was really really happy to see shit like that so I, I give it a solid like three and a half out of five stars overall like there's a lot of overwrought exposition like a lot of characters just talking about stuff as we've we've talked about so like that that kind of drags a little bit you could probably cut like a good 15 20 minutes out of the movie and still be solid but um i want to do a quick plug if that's not you know too too bad here uh if you want to see more of my work uh patreon.com slash who's comics doing a lot of collaborations with dan wilson right now i'm offering a poster the the rev poster at the 15 dollar tier if you're into that sort of thing check out patreon.com slash who's comics and hey if you're a fan of alan parker there isn't a 4k restoration of this movie or the wall but some fan on youtube has made his own 4k 60 fps version of the wall it's like scene by scene 
So, like, it's not, I guess, to avoid copyright infringement. I don't understand how that works. But you can find a playlist that's every scene of the wall in 4K, and it's just immaculate. Check that out. Go see the the wall in 4K on YouTube. That's probably what I'm going to do after this recording, <laughs> to be quite honest. But, yeah, I, I was really happy that this was one of the movies that you guys chose. Thanks for introducing me to this movie, Dan, and and Seeking Human Victims family. Turn it over to you, Dan. Hell yeah. <laughs> right on. Angel yeah, Heart. We closed the book. Long. <laughs> <laughs> closed a really long book. Yeah, we closed the book on Angel Heart. Uh, we will be back next week with the season finale of Seeking Human Victims Season 16. The Devil Made Me Do It. We'll probably take a couple of weeks off to gather our wits and get the next series of bonus episodes together. We will have several Patreon-sponsored bonus episodes from our awesome executive producer tier patrons, Casey and James. So we appreciate you guys supporting the show and look forward to providing those hand-picked episodes from you guys uh, in between this and our next season. And next week, we will have some sort of announcement on what season 17 will be as far as the the topic. Um, probably won't yet have a release date for that because we got to get a lot of bonus episodes out of the way first. But uh, we'll at least update you on what's going on next week on the show and then of course we will see you next week when we talk about our season finale movie you know director ty west is all the rage right now uh of course with the x trilogy of films that is in progress we got x we got pearl and now we will get the final film in the trilogy maxine in 2023 uh, so we're going to go back to kind of where it all started for this guy. And in my opinion, maybe still his best movie. And that's saying a lot. Cause I really fucking love both of the X movies that I've seen, but, uh, this is a movie that really put this guy on the map, legitimately scary, satanic cult, horror, great eighties vibes. I'm talking about motherfucking house of the devil next week. On Seeking Human Victim. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life at Seeking Human Victims. Seeking Human Victims.